0: Well, this morning, if you're joining us, uh, maybe you haven't been sitting through these messages that we've been doing, we've been messing around in our happiness for the last several weeks, starting this year out, and we're going to do that again this morning in a little series we've called Fixing Your Happiness by Fixing Your Gaze. Let Let me land on that word. We landed on gazing a couple of weeks ago. Let me land on the word fixing. Um. How many of us know that we are unhappy people because of something that needs to get fixed in us? Did you know that? If you just played out the original creation, God creates humanity, sticks them in a garden. How how many of you know at that moment, there will be no unhappy days in that moment? It's the Garden of Eden. It is a place of, of great blessing and, and perfect order. Man exists in an environment that's not hostile to him. Uh, he's not hostile to one another. There's harmony with God. Everything works. And then sin intrudes and things don't work. Things are now broken. Things need to be fixed. And so when you and I bump into unhappiness, It's because there's things in us that need to be fixed. Now, here's the the tricky part. Too many of us are, are standing around believing that I'm unhappy because things in him need to be fixed. Or just things in society need to be fixed. Or the government needs to be fixed. Or that traffic light needs to be fixed. My phone needs to be fixed. Something out there needs to be fixed and I could be happy. Right, you can make a quick list right now. If I could say right now, two or three things that if it could just get fixed in your life, you, you know your inha- happiness would increase. Now you've lived long enough to know that if those things change, you just would add to the list later on. Two weeks from now, you'd have a new list. Something else needs to be fixed. But can we humble ourselves today and recognize this? More than anything else out there that needs to get fixed, there is stuff in here, in me, that needs to get fixed. I am... More than anybody else, and more than anything else, I am the source of my own unhappiness. You with me? If we'll take a little ownership of that, listen, that's not an easy concept. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. Maybe I should revisit it. But you and I live in a victim culture. Everybody's the victim of something else, everybody's been done wrong by someone else. Things are not going your way. Somebody else is responsible. Find a lawyer and sue them. That's the culture that you and I live in. So we don't do a good job of taking responsibility for I am unhappy because of stuff in me that needs to get fixed. Now, here's the great news. Here's my premise for what we're doing in this series. Seeing some things about God fixes some things about us. Seeing some things about God. God is a certain way. His character is a certain way. His power is a certain way. And future operations and interaction with our lives is a certain way. And if I can see that, it has the power to fix something about me. So gazing is very, very important in how we look upon God. So turn to Psalm 14 with me. Well, what I want to do in the coming weeks is is look at things about God that fix particular things about us, and I want to major in what we 're going to see in God, but I want us to I want us to do what the Bible really requires us to do. You and I look into the heavens if you will, we look at God, but we do so with our feet planted on earth, and, and earth is broken, and our lives are broken so kind of look through the lens of our own brokenness and need to be fixed at God. And that's what we're going to do here in Psalm 14. We're going to get introduced to the fool, the unhappy life of a fool. Now, if you haven't been called a fool lately, um, we just say there's a little bit of fool in all of us. So own this to whatever degree it needs to be owned, but there's none of us exempt from the reality. There's a little bit of fool in every one of us. Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There's none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous, You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Lord, thank you for this word preserved for us revealing you to us, and and Lord, revealing us as well to us. We need both. We pray today you will bring us into the good news that brings God and man into the same sentence. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been talking in the last couple of weeks about addresses in Scripture where, where things are not happy, Right? We looked at Romans 1, not a happy setting. If you stick your feet in Romans 1 and walk around a little bit, it's a, it's a lot of unhappiness going on. This verse, this passage is also a good bit of unhappiness. And if you look through the vocabulary, here's the vocabulary words of unhappiness. Right? You have people who are corrupt. Their activities include abominable deeds. There's none doing good. They've all turned aside. There's no knowledge. And they are evildoers. Now, that's the creation that takes place when one is a fool. That's the description of words taking place when somebody values momentary pleasure above anything else. Because, I mean, when you look at those words, they're corrupt, they're abominable deeds. They're evildoers. People are doing abominable things and they're evildoers. Why do people do abominable things and commit evil? Well, because they think there's something in this for them that's good. Right? The, the, the average person you're bumping into who is harming someone else, who is bringing detriment, stealing from them, taking their life, they're doing it for a momentary pleasure. They're, they're do, they could take your life just to score a few bucks that you've got in your pocket so they can get high for a momentary pleasure. They've taken your life for that. Because for them, momentary pleasure ruled the day. Listen, hopefully we're gaining some wisdom as we move through this series. That we don't want to exchange true happiness for momentary pleasures. But that's the great temptation. And if you visit this, these people have made decisions that looked pleasurable. They would bring reward, but inevitably they brought things like conflict. Selfishness. You make these kinds of decisions in your life. Abuse, neglect. Now sprinkle that in to the activities of life. And that's no longer a happy setting, is it? Where you've got conflict. That's not happy. You're not enjoying that. Where there's abuse taking place. Where there's neglect taking place. That's not a happy place. That's an unhappy place. Well, what's, what's the epicenter of this unhappy condition? What well, starts off labeling these people as a fool? This person is a fool. Now, if you've got one of those Bibles that you can search electronically and you put fool in, you'll find out the Bible has a lot to say about a fool. Right? Here's a quick little rundown. You just get a little flavor for this. Now remember, remember, don't be, don't be obnoxious here. Don't be thinking everybody else but you is a fool. There's a little bit of fool in all of us, so these passages kind of highlight, yeah, I'm kind of that way. Proverbs 14, verse 16, one. Who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil. But a fool is reckless and careless. Right? I mean, hey, put yourself in the in the balance here. You have you have cautious turning away from evil. Remember, you're turning away from something that has momentary pleasure in it, but ultimately it's evil. Or you're reckless and careless, right? I mean, which which one are you? Turn to your parents and ask them, which, which one am I? Right? Proverbs 4, 17, 12. Let a man meet a she-bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. Proverbs 18, 6. A fool's lips walk into a fight and his mouth invites a beating. <laughs> I mean, you know this because you've gotten around some people that, that just for some reason there's something that he just wants to punch them. Right? Well, that's biblical. <laughs> That was. <laughs> uh, it's right here in this verse. Your mouth invites a beating. You are inviting me to punch you right now. Right? That's what that's saying. Proverbs 20 verse 3 similarly says, It is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. Right? You just know people that their, their resume is conflict with everyone. They just, everybody in their life, they're just at odds with them. They walk in and the tension sets in, you know, they attend the family meeting or the holiday gathering. And so it's kind of like, is, is so-and-so coming Fool She, everybody braces because they're just at odds with everyone because there's a realm of, they're a fool in their life. Now, listen, I, I'm using a biblical word here. I know when I say. You're a fool. The part of you says, man, that is so stinking insulting. Well, I'm just saying the Bible uses that word. And I'll explain why it uses that word. And if you'll just for a moment bear the title and then learn why someone is a fool. I think it will be very helpful for us. Proverbs 23 verse 9. Do not speak in the hearing of a fool for he will despise the good sense of your words. And just realize at some point you are wasting your words. A fool, and you'll learn what the definition for a fool is here in just a second. If what describes this person is what the scriptures are about to say about them, then you talking to them. Go ahead if you got nothing else to do. But you may be just wasting your words. Proverbs 26, verse 10. Like an archer who wounds everyone is one who hires a passing fool or drunkard. Like a dog that returns to his vomit. Is a fool who repeats his folly. Proverbs twenty nine eleven. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Right? A, a fool is, is a person who tends to lack restraint. Just give themselves to whatever. They see something, impulsively run after it. Want to say something, so they say it. There's no sense of restraint in their life. Right, this is how the scriptures speak about a fool. But then in this passage, we get a bit of a definition for a fool. Right? Well, who is the fool according to scripture? We just, this is what fools do. We just learn what fools do and how they behave. But who is the fool? In verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now catch this. Because because all those awkward behavior descriptions that are in the rest of this psalm and all the things that the Proverbs have to say about what fools do and how hard it is to get along with them and what a mistake it is for you to talk to them or hire them. Why does all that get created? Because there's this epicenter of an earthquake of problems that goes off in their heart and it's this. There is no God. The source of a fool's lifestyle, the source of all this trouble is the heart that concludes there is no God. You'll notice many of the time a fool is doing stuff that lacks restraint. Right? He, you know, there's wisdom that says, hey, don't do that. Right? When you're young, you do a lot of stupid things. Right? You just haven't lived enough life. Later on, life tells you, I ain't doing that again. That just doesn't create a happy ending. Well, it takes time to learn that. But a fool doesn't have any boundaries protecting him. So he says and does stuff that's destructive for all kinds of people. Well, why does he do that? Because he's cast off God. He's cast off the governing personality of the universe. He's cast off the one who created everything and established why it functions and therefore established its boundaries. See, God is a, God is a boundary provider. And, you know, sometimes we kind of resist that, but... If you play outside the boundaries of what God intended your life to be in certain categories, it, it invites trouble. It won't, it won't bring happiness to you. This is one of the reasons why this little series is kind of important because you and I are trying to find happiness. But if you try and find it out ca- outside the categories of righteousness and good that God has created, you will never find happiness. You will find momentary pleasure. I'll guarantee you that most of the time. But you will never find true happiness. So the fool has cast off God. John Gill says it this way there is no God. Though they do not express it with their mouths, yet they would fain persuade their hearts to deny the being of God. That so, having no superior to whom they are accountable, they may go on in sin with impunity. Accordingly, the Targum the Targum is an Aramaic paraphrase of the Old Testament. Phrases it this way: There is no government of God in the earth. Kimchi interprets it this way: There is no governor nor judge in the world to render to man according to his works. Right, so this is what the fool concludes. The fool concludes: There's nobody watching over me. There's nobody to whom I'm accountable. There's no superior being to whom everybody gives an answer and one day will give an answer. And then when he begins to live his life, since I'm never going to pay taxes on these activities, I'm never going to be rendering an account for these activities. So if I choose foolish pleasure just for a moment, so what? So what? Because the fool has thrown off God. Now, listen, uh, you know, I said so there's a little bit of fooling on all of us. If you had met me in the late 70s, uh, you would have met a guy who, who thought he had a category for God, thought he had a category for God, but who was a fool. Because I, I had cast God off in my life. I, it, it didn't... Whatever concept of God I have, it didn't change me from being a liar. You'd have met Keith Collins in the late 70s, you'd have met a liar. you met a guy who would lie to you in order to get his butt out of trouble. Or you'd have met a guy who would lie to you in order to improve my view, how you viewed me. Make like stretch things, make everything better than they are and impress you with that. You would have met a thief whether or not I stole from you in particular, I was stealing from people. Plenty. Because I saw momentary pleasure in whatever it is that you had, typically if you had money or belongings that I wanted. I just cast off restraint. You know, you'd met a, a, a lustful teenager who didn't have any reason not to indulge those lusts. No reason not to. Because in my mind, even though there was a, a category for God, in my mind, I was never going to have to answer to him. In reality, if I, if I tell you I believe that in the 70s, I'm lying to you. Because to truly believe that I would have to give an account to God from my life would have arrested me in my behavior. I was, I was what this scripture describes. I was reckless. Vandalism was a sport for me. Drugs. I mean, I'm 12, 13, 14 years old already experimenting with drugs and alcohol just to see what that's like. That's reckless at that age. That's the fool you would have met. And to encounter God is to encounter a God who steps into your world and says, don't do that anymore. Follow me. Stop doing that. Don't don't live your life for that. And so God's opinions got all over my life in 1979. Now, I'll say this interesting two-handedly. On the one hand, when I met God in 1979... It was it was like Psalm 63. It was like my soul was thirsting and desperate. So when I, when I drank in God, my soul was, was like getting quenched. It was, oh, I found what my soul had been longing for. And so there was a part of me that didn't have any problem giving up that and that and that and that. Just no problem. I'm, I'm, I'm good to be done with that. But just shortly before that, those things were the very things that I wanted in my life. Now, I can tell you to this day, I didn't, I didn't quit doing drugs because I got so strung out. I beat my life up so bad. I was in jail and the only way I could turn was away from those things because they were destructive to me. That was not my story. Drugs were pure fun, period. There was no reason to move away from them. They didn't tell me move away from them. They didn't make my life miserable. To me, they're part of the adventure. But when I met God, God had an opinion about that, right? I, you know, I'm a human being. I'm a man. I'm wired for one day having a woman. So as a teenager, uh, there, there's plenty in me that doesn't mind a woman's body and looking at it in whatever ways I could possibly do that. F- on the human being end of that, pure pleasure. There's nothing in me that said, oh, man, that's, that's become terrible. <laughs> see what, let's see what God has because I don't want any more of that. Uh, no, I, I could take plenty more. Thank you. But when I met God, there was a conviction that came into my life that that's not all right with God. I see, I mean, I, I would have told you I knew God before, but I was more like the fool who said in his heart, there is no God. I live like there was no God. I gave myself to things that God was not okay with. Now, let me just say this, and I do I'm, I'm keep pressing this political hot button, but you hear it 10 times and you come to church and hear it once. When I hear Christianity having to connect and interact with our culture in the category like gay marriage, categories where Christianity seems to be imposing itself on people's personal choices and telling them that you can't do that, that's wrong. And then the culture wants to scream back at these obnoxious Christians and say, who, who are you to tell people what they can and can't do? Okay, well, do you, you do recognize if you're reading the Bible, there's a God who says what you can and can't do. He really is here in the Bible. And, you know, note personally, note to gay America. You're not the first person to be told by God, you can't do that. Like it's taking away some kind of rights. You understand my rights were taken away in 1979. I would have loved to have slept with everything moving as a teenager. I would have loved to have done a few more drugs and experiment with some that I hadn't quite figured out how to tap into yet. I would have loved to have said yes to the money that was in your wallet because it helped me get pleasures that I was after. Personally, that's nothing but gain in every one of those categories until God comes along and imposes his view on me and says, that's not what I have for you. That's not what I'm like. And you have now become my image bearer as being a Christian. So listen, whatever category that you feel like Christianity is stomping on and jumping into and and, and vetting its opinion about, I've already been there, and so have you. I've already had God come along and tell me, don't do that anymore. So it's not as though we've created this rare one category, this rare category. Christianity is fine with everything else except this one area, and we take odds with it, and we tell people you can't do that. Listen, the Bible says don't do for a bunch of stuff. And when you, when you begin to figure out it's a loving God who designed you for joy and he says, don't do, you figure out that it's because there's something that glorifies God over here, not over there. And if your heart loves God, which my heart loved God in 1979, I gladly gave up things that you couldn't have pried out of my hands before. There was no giving that up before for me. God changed my heart and my desires. So this this principle of casting off God is what the basis of the fool is. The fool says in his heart, there's no governance. There's no oversight. There's no accountability. There's no God. I do what I want to do, and there's no consequence to that. Okay, well, the Bible says that's what a fool does. And, I, and I've got some fool activity on my resume. Remember we looked at Romans 1 last week? It says that since they did not see fit to acknowledge God or to have God in their knowledge, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what they ought not to do. Well, the, that's what the fool does. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart... I have no need for the knowledge of God. God does not need to inhabit my world. God does need, doesn't need to traffic in the daily routines of my life and I live like there is no God. I mean, let me just say this to, to those of us who are, are Christians who <clears throat> claim to be acknowledging that there is a God. There, there is a, a, a what I'll call a functional atheism that can show up in our lives where we are Christians because we put our faith in Christ and who he is and what he's done for us on the cross and we come into a relationship with God. But it's kind of strange that from time to time we act like functional atheists. We act like people who really don't believe that there is a God. If you're busy right now, you're living your life, you're doing your thing, and I were to ask you, have you been seeking the will of God for your life? You've been taking time to discover what is God's will and agenda for your life. Whether you're a young person who's got a lot in front of you or you're just a person in a season of life, in midlife, wherever you are. Are you seeking to know God's will for your life? If you were scratching your head right now and saying, uh, well, I, I don't know. I, honestly, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm just doing life. It's busy, got a lot going on. I'm just doing what I've been doing. I I don't know if I'm doing that. But you understand, that's how an atheist lives too. He doesn't seek to know the will of God. He doesn't think it's relevant. He doesn't think there is a God to seek. Now, we say there is a God to seek, but if we don't seek him, then we live like functional atheists. We don't look for God to govern our lives. Uh, When you disregard God's commands, you live like a functional atheist. If God says, do this, and I don't do it, then functionally, I'm saying in my heart, it doesn't really matter that there's a God. Well, then you treat him like there is no God. Because instead of doing whatever it is that God had commanded you to do, you treat it like it's up to you. Therefore, there is no God, You're God. And you do what you want. When you, you know, I mean make it real here. We're all gathered here. It's raining. You got nowhere to go. (laughs) You know, I mean, I look at, I look at the weather forecast for Sunday mornings because I know it just don't take much for some people to feel like it's too much trouble to come to church. Matter of fact, you know, if you just get a busy weekend going on, it's too much trouble to come to church. People don't come to church. It's happening all over this country. It's happening in the churches everywhere. Can I just say this? Even if you were here, you're not here this morning, you listen to this by tape, whatever. You weren't here last week. When when you treat as optional what God commands, you act like a functional atheist. In your your heart, you say, it doesn't matter whether I do what God has commanded me to do. Listen, let me put it to you this way. This little piece of time real estate here, Sunday morning gathering of the body of Christ in Scripture, it's clear. You are not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Well, this is our primary time of assembling. We have other times of assembling, but this is a primary time for the body of Christ to assemble together. So according to the commands of Scripture, God owns this little two-hour piece of real estate in your life. He owns it. It's his. If you choose to do something else with it, you act like a functional atheist. To where it doesn't matter whether God has got any dibs on that in my life. To me, it's optional. All right, I get that. I'm just wondering where you got that. That's what functional atheism says. See, there's a little fool in all of us, isn't there? How about this more positive one? When you live your life in your own strength. You live like a functional atheist. See, a person without God determines what they can and can't do based on who they are. Based on what they can do. Based on their persuasion of personality. Based on their tenacity. Based on their interest. Based on the amount of money that they have. Based on how big their name is. Based on their influence with people. Can I do that? Well, it's all about me. Well... An atheist lives that way. It's all about him when he goes to live his life too. But for a Christian who is under the governance of God, what you do with your life is no longer defined by you. Now it's defined by God and what he wants you to do. And you'll find God will have you doing stuff that you'd have never done ever. And he'll bring grace and ability and provision into your life to do stuff that you don't have the resources to do. But whenever you bump into you, the edges of your own power and abilities, and that's, where, that's as far as you're going to go, we live like functional atheists when we do that. Right? So let me go back to this epicenter where we've pushed God out. The epicenter of the fool's unhappy existence, it's very fundamental to being a human being. Right? I think I put this in, our, in your outline. We were created to be ruled over. We are created to be under authority, not the authority. Everybody get that? You're a created being. You didn't create yourself. Another being created you with a design in place. You were created to be under his authority, not the authority. You you don't have the wiring. You don't have the... The hardware in place in you to run your own life. You don't have it. God didn't give it to you. He created you to have a God over you. And it's the fool who thinks different than that. He says, no, I can do this. I got this. I can run this thing. Well, what Psalm 14 says, that once the fool concludes in his own heart there's no God, he obviously becomes God himself. In that, and these words begin to fall into place. Right? They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There's none who does good. None who does good. Once you remove God, listen. If you want a fresh definition for good, this is a very helpful definition for good because we use that term very sloppily. We get around stuff that's kind of appealing and pleasing in the natural, and we say, "Oh, have you met someone? Oh, they are so good." You know, Jesus. Jesus sort of yanked on people's chain when they used the word good around him. Remember they even told him he was good and he wouldn't let them say that because they didn't know what they were saying. He stopped them. Good teacher. Whoa, whoa, whoa. why do you call me good? Why do you use that word that way? There's none good but God. Right, well, here, there's none who do good. Well, Why is there none who do good? Well, once you conclude that God's not going to be God, everything in your life becomes corrupt. Everything, helping little old ladies across the street, giving billions of dollars to help starving people on the other side of the world. Do that, having divorced God from being God in your life, and it's no longer good. There's none who do good. Who says this? Well, God says it. Well, what does he know? Well, he knows what's good. So he's about the only one qualified to really say when people are good and when they're not. He says, none do good. None? None. They don't have any understanding. They don't seek after God. Ooh, that's the key for understanding good. You want to understand good, you have to understand the pursuit of God. Honoring God as God is the key to understanding anything good in our lives. So here's a here's problem in this category of, of, of happiness. This is what corruption does, right? Here, here's God... Think of concentric circles here, right? Moving out bigger and bigger in our life. Right in the center, this two-mile radius of our lives is supposed to be God. But the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So he moves him way to the edge or completely out of the picture altogether. And then life caves in on that two-mile hole and everything takes a two-mile step inward. Everything, everything in your life, your marriage, your children, your money, how you view sex, what you do at a job, how you use your time. Everything takes a two-mile step into a new location. That's what corruption is. That's a definition for corruption. Everything's in the wrong place now. That's corruption. And when the fool says there's no God, everything lives at a new address, an address it never was supposed to live at. An existence in our lives it never was supposed to have. And so everybody becomes more important than they're supposed to be. Right? So it's it's terribly important that my spouse walk on water and be ultimate and do everything right and supply to me all that I need. She, she's gotta do that. See, because she has moved from here to here. Much more important. Money. This move from here to here. It's much more important. I I, got to have it. It's so key to everything I'm about. What what caused everything to move forward? Well, removing God from being the center of my existence. Everything exists to be oriented around God. And so once you relocate stuff in your life, you have a really hard time managing it, ever becoming a place of happiness in you. Because your marriage is in the wrong place, your parenting's in the wrong place, your material possessions are in the wrong place, everything's in the wrong place because one thing is out of place God. Does that make sense? Everybody with me on that? Very helpful thought here from John Piper. He says, Why marriage? Why is there marriage? Why does marriage exist? Why do we live in marriages? Well, this means that my topic is part of a larger question Why does anything exist? Why do you exist? Why does sex exist? Why do earth and sun and moon and stars exist? Why do animals and plants and oceans and mountains and atoms and galaxies exist? The answer to all these questions, including the one about marriage, is all of them exist to and for the glory of God. That is, they exist to magnify the truth And worth and beauty and greatness of God. God is unimaginably great and infinitely valuable and unsurpassed in beauty. Everything that exists is meant to magnify that reality. God creates man. Go back to the original creation in the image of God. God created man. you, You just got a vision statement for your life. That's the original creation. Originally, before any of us lived in America, drove a certain car, wanted a certain lifestyle, wanted to be married, do life a certain... Before any of that, the very first human being was created for a purpose, to be the image bearer of God. That's why man exists. But it, it, it's also why you don't get to tamper with things. Why you don't get to reinvent things. Why you don't get to slide things into a new category of happiness. Right? We're, we're living in a day right now where, where marriage is being slid into a new category. And, and the argument is, well, who, who are you people to say that this is wrong? I'm nobody, right? I, I own nothing here. Right? I, I, I'm literally a nobody. I, I'm not even all that well-educated. In light of all that there is to know. But but there is a God who owns everything. And he knows everything. and, And he assigned a purpose to everything. And he says, let us make man in our image male and female. And then he brings them together in something called oneness. So they will no longer live separately, but the man will cleave to his wife and they will become one flesh. Why does that matter, this one flesh? Because that one flesh union is telling a story about the invisible God. It is bearing the image of God. You realize for God to create an image of himself, he didn't just need male. And he didn't just need female. He needed male And female. And he needed them to be a certain way. Therefore he made them distinct from each other. And then in their distinction. He needed them to come together and be one. In order to image God. Now listen. You can legislate all you want. Because there's lots of laws in the land here. That don't reflect God's purpose. So you can legislate all you want. That a man and another man come together. In something called a sexual relationship. It is not the image of God. This is why the debate before God's got no audience. Because God designed it. And he said, this is, what, this is my purpose. It's to show forth my image. And, and there is no oneness between two men. And there's no oneness between two women coming together. They, they just physically can't do it. And then relationally, in God's plan, they can't relationally do it either. Because they don't have the distinction of one being male and one being female and coming together in the purpose of God. But that goes back to the image of God being important. If you stop caring about the image of God, if the fool says in his heart, there is no God. There's no governing principle over our lives. There's no higher power to which we're accountable and all of our ideas must be submitted. Well, then you just do whatever. That's what this verse describes. People who just chose to do whatever. And listen, I'm going to pick on this one category. And you know, the sexual issue is a real issue. It's a real issue that the enemy goes after when you understand that, that it's an aspect of portraying the glory of God. Now you know why the devil is so much messing with it. Right? I mean, I mean let, me, let me offend the rest of everybody here. <laughs> if, if you got married and you were not a virgin when you got married... It's because you played the fool. In a moment of pleasure, you acted like there was no God that you had to answer to, or who had an opinion over what you were doing in your life. This is not just a homosexual issue. This is man saying, hey, we got other ways to do this. Well, the moment you say we got other ways and you validate them, Your heart is saying, there's no God. It doesn't matter whether we do it the way he said, do it. That's what this heart is saying in that moment. If you're tempted and you commit adultery in your life, in that moment, you're playing the fool. In that moment, your heart is saying, it doesn't matter that God says something about life. I say this, and I will do it this way instead of God's way. Well, this passage is about that. It's about people who want to self-govern. That needs to get fixed, doesn't it? The source of all kinds of woe and conflict and problems in my life is that I want to do things my way. I don't want to do them God's way. There's a little bit of fool in me that wants to compete with God's ideas. But seeing something about God fixes something in me. Seeing God's authority fixes the foolishness in me. I don't know why foolishness can exist at such a great level? Well, I think the corollaries are going to always be true. The greater the foolishness, the less you've seen of God. Almost guaranteed. Oh, I go to church a lot and I go to this and I go to that. Well, whatever you're doing, it's not sinking in. Because if I've got a lot of foolishness in my life, then it bears witness that you have not seen God in his authority governing over your life. Now, let me just run us through here quickly. This verse turns. You start off featuring the character of the fool. Verse 2, we move to the other character in this psalm, the Lord. The fool says in his heart, but verse 2, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man. Now, who, is, who is this? when you see that word, the Lord, in the Old Testament, the Lord is the the phraseology that's translated into our language that describes the personal God. It is the word Yahweh, translated into our English translation. Yahweh is God's personal revelation of who he is. And you remember how this gets revealed, right? Conversation between Moses and God, Exodus chapter 3, God jumps into Moses' life and Taps him to go into Egypt and rescue his people. And in that conversation, Moses is going to ask some questions about this God. Because I don't think Moses knows a ton about this God. So, you know, who are you? And God says, I am that I am. He, he kind of uses in the English language the, the verb to be for us. He uses a word that describes existence. And he, he's stating who he is. I'm the existent one. I'm the, I'm the source of everything. I'm the originator of it all. Right? All, all life is because I am. Right? That, that's how God was, was answering him. And he reveals himself as Yahweh. That's where that word comes from in the Hebrew. So so who is God here? I'm going to put this in your outline there. He is the source, the originator, the creator, the owner, the only self-existent one, the one who answers to no one. The eternal always have been one. Right. This is in its purity the definition for authority. If you want to know what authority is, this is the God who has all authority. This is why when Jesus stands up and says, "All authority has been given to me go," he really means all authority. All authority. He answers to no one. There's nobody holding back a little bit of authority. God's got a bunch of authority, but there's something else that has authority in the universe. God has it all. He is the only being to which everything answers, and everything will answer. And and, and this is what freaks us out when God starts to act that way. Can you imagine? God, would you act like you own the place? Yeah, I do. Right. I mean, God shows up in Moses' life. He's he's an older man. I think he's about eighty years old at this point. He's out tending sheep, got a good business going on. He's married, got a couple of kids. He's living in Midian. Things are settled. He's gotten away from all that strife and problems back in Egypt. Life is good, man. There's this little bush on fire on the side of a mountain. You know the difference between glancing and gazing? Remember when we talked about that? If Moses had just decided to glance, he could have stayed in Midian, tended his sheep, and stayed out of all this trouble. Just glance. He just sees the little burning bush thing. Hmm, That's different. Then just go back to your business. But he didn't glance. The Bible says he turned aside. He wanted to understand. And so he gazed upon this bush. And this bush spoke back to him. And God revealed himself to Moses. The guy who was walking around paying attention to sheep. All of a sudden is paying attention to God. And God exercises his right to say, hey Moses, whatever it is you're doing, stop it and go do this. I know you got stuff going on, I know you got a schedule. Let me see your planner. Yeah, you got you're booked for months, but pick up your life and go to Egypt. And tell the most powerful ruler in the world and his nation to let my people go. <laughs> really? Uh, <clears throat> Anybody going with me? Oh Yeah, take that stick right there with you. <clears throat> and then after he whines long enough and says, "God, you don't understand. I'm not qualified. I don't speak well. I don't even know if I can put sentences together. I'm not your man." God sends Aaron with him, so you got Moses, Aaron, and a stick on their way to Egypt. And, and God acts like he's got the right to dole out those kinds of assignments. God, what are you thinking? I don't know. I'm thinking I'm God. (laughs) Thinking I can do whatever I want, whenever I want with anybody's life at any moment. How many of us this morning are, you got a court case pending with God right now. God's in court because you ended up doing something with your life that you didn't sign on for. You didn't want it to be like this. You didn't want it to be this hard. You didn't want this address. You didn't want this assignment. And God needs to answer to you. The fool says in his heart, there's no God. God doesn't answer to you. You answer to God. There's no happy existence for you. Can I put it back on your terms? There's no happy existence for you when you think God answers to you. He doesn't answer to you. Even when he says, pick up a stick and and your buddy there, your your brother, and go and uh, confront Pharaoh. Oh, and after that, after he you know, cries uncle and lets you go, then, then Mr. Provision, uh, with no McDonald's along the highway, take three million people into the desert. This is a horrible assignment. Nobody wants this job. And yet God says, go do it. Because God exercises the right to tell us what to do. And then God gets his people to the foot of Mount Sinai. He brings them together, Exodus chapter 20, and he turns around and introduces himself to them. I am, Yahweh, personal name, God, originator, owner of everything. And then immediately, he gives them the Ten Commandments. Immediately turns around and imposes on them the way that they're to do life from now on. Well, who does he think he is to tell us, honor our parents? Do you know who my parents are? Are you serious? Honor my parents. It's nuts. Don't commit adultery. Oh. God, you obviously have never been a man. Obviously. I mean, there's all kinds of arguments here. God doesn't put up with any of it. He acts like he's got the right to tell every human being what to do with their lives. Because he does. And I need to see that. It's how God lives and exists with us. Psalm 14 Because the Lord looks down from heaven. The Lord looks down from heaven. Now now gaze with me here for a moment. Because this enlivens my faith. This is the gazing that affects my soul. Where is this God? Well, well, he is in the heavens. That posture makes him over all things and above all things. That's that's the image God's wanting to portray to us. He's not underneath anything. He's not subject to anything. He's over it all. Psalm 115 verse 3. But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. (laughs) He who sits in the heavens laughs. All kinds of people deciding that they're going to overthrow what God is doing. They're not going to cooperate with what God is doing. They're not going to make themselves available to what God is doing. And he who sits in the heavens laughs. Says, you're kidding me, right? You think you can overthrow what I will do? I'm Yahweh. I control everything. Psalm 123, verse 1. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Psalm 135, verse 5. For I know that the Lord is great, right? The Lord, Yahweh, is great. And that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven. And on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Can you just stare at that concept for a moment? Right now as you live your life, stare at that reality. Stare at this God who is in the heavens. He's above all things and he does whatever he pleases. There's nothing that can cause God to not do whatever he's planned to do. Nothing in this world nothing in our lives, nothing in that person's sin, nothing in the lack, nothing in what the government does, nothing in me. There's nothing that trumps God. I just need to live in that sometimes. You need to live in that reality sometimes. Because I stare at stuff that's broken and and needs to be fixed like me and I don't feel real good about what I'm staring at. In fact, I get convinced that this can never change. I get convinced that that circumstances can't be overcome. That's what convinces me when I stare at that stuff. But see, this is why Jesus taught his disciples to pray in Matthew 6. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven. If you take this, this prayer apart and you pray it the way it's meant to be prayed as an outline, you've got to stop there and you've got to ponder. God is in heaven. It means He's above everything. He's ruling over everything. And he's not subject to anything. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom Come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, this is an acknowledgement. This is how we pray. Listen, when you can't climb into your prayer closet with a view of God, you really can't pray right. right? And do you do this? I mean, I do this. I, I climb into my prayer closet with a long list of broken stuff that needs to be fixed, and I, and I know everything about every screw that's getting loose. And so I talk to God about screw number seven and, and screw number nine, and I don't even know where screw number 13 is. And I'm just complaining out loud to God and I'm scared of it. And Lord, you know, and, and just over and over again, me studying the blueprint of what's broken. See, praying involves seeing God, our father who's in heaven, who's above all this stuff. You are high and lifted up and you are not subject to anything. That's where prayer has got to start. I've got to see God to pray, not just my broken world. Now, let me close with a, just go back to Moses for a second here Eric, you can come back up. What did seeing this do for Moses? Moses is going to have an encounter with God. He's living life. He's making a living. He's got a sheep business going on, doing pretty well. And he turns aside and he encounters God. He sees God. God gives him an assignment. Moses got no faith for that. God who am I to go and do what you just described? How am I going to pull this off, God? How, this doesn't work. Who am I Lord, to go and confront Pharaoh? Really? And to bring three million people back with me? God, who am I to do that? God's answer? Moses, I will go with you. So it doesn't really matter who you are. It just matters who I am. Well, all right, then. Who are you? <laughs> That's what Moses says. I'm going to get there. I'm going to tell Pharaoh, let everybody go. He's going to see me with a stick. He's not going to cooperate. I'm not going to say, don't make me use a stick. <laughs> Come over there, put a whooping on you. That's not going to work, God. So we got something else. I mean, what am I going to tell him? What am I going to tell the people? Why would 3 million people follow me into the desert? Well, I will go with you. But who are you? I am Yahweh. I'm the God who is over all. I'm the God who exists and always has existed. I am that I am, Moses. Everything that exists draws its existence from me. And I can turn it up, turn it down, move it to the left or right. I can do with it anything I please at any moment. That's who I am, Moses. Now, Moses in this moment doesn't act like a fool. He doesn't act like a functional atheist. He believes God. He's convinced by God and he does two things. He obeys God and he becomes confident in what God called him to do. Right? See, that, that's the outcome of gazing upon God in this category. See, the fool in my heart wants to argue with the God, God debate with God, and do something different than what God had in mind for me. That's what the fool in my heart wants to do. It wants to act like I don't have to obey. Right? God calls you to do something. Does your heart sometimes kind of let you off the hook? Well, I don't really have to do that. I mean, God would understand. Well, after all, God wants me to be happy. If Moses reasoned that way, if his ruling understanding of God in this moment was that God would want me to be happy, he's going to go right back to his friendly little sheep because it looks happier to hang out and tend this business than it does to pick up a stick and go with his brother and confront Pharaoh and then be responsible for three million people in a desert. That's not attractive. But it's not an option either. Because God is God and he has every right to tell me what to do. And he becomes obedient. But not just obedient. He he goes in confidence. Because he is seeing Yahweh. The God who goes with him. Listen, sometimes you and I are struggling to be confident in our lives because we're not aware that God is with us. And even in some of the moments where we become aware that he's with us, we don't know him well enough to benefit from him being with us. That's a gazing problem. That's why I've not looked at God enough to see him in my life. So this morning, I want God to help us to, to see Yahweh, the God who is ultimate overall, the God who is in authority. And I want my life to meet that authority. I want to be tested by whether or not I treat that authority like it's optional. Whether I'm living in in fear and smallness, I'm trying to do the things that God's called me to do, but there's no sense of confidence about what I'm doing. See, when I'm living that way, my heart is saying, I'm not confident because there's no God. It's just me. And I'm just out here on the end of a limb, taking a chance with all my talent and consistency. I don't have any peace about that. Did you lose sight of God? God is with you. He has sent you to wherever it is he's called you. Let's, Let's stand up together. let you invite the spirit of God to just be personal with you to care for your soul you walked in here this morning wrestling with the issues of of a happy life a meaningful soul satisfying life God's interested in that for you does love and care about you let him speak to you personally where are you at in all this Where's this God at in your life? Let me me ask some of you this question. Does your life raise the question, where's God? You look about your your plans and your ideas, how you're approaching life, how you spend your time, the things that are stressing you out that are most valuable to you. Does, Does your life look just like a life of someone who doesn't even believe in God? You're stressing out about the same stuff. You're afraid of the same things. You lack confidence in the same ways. You can't remember the last time you stopped and submitted your life to God and said, God, you are my God. God, my life belongs to you. It's yours. What do you want me to do with it next? You can't remember the last time you did that or if you've ever done that. that God's not your God. And you, can, you can change that this morning. You can turn to God this morning in faith and welcome Him to take ownership of your life. He is, he is the owner of all things. You're just going to get really surprised at the end of your life. When you get to the end and you stand before God, God, And he asked for an account of what you did with the life that he gave you. And you notice on the ownership deed, ultimately everything belongs to God. So your life belongs to God. But functionally, is that true? Have you you given your life to God in such a way that it's his life to do with whatever he wants? That's what it means to... Put your faith in Christ. To trust in the God who so wanted to reconcile you to himself that he sent his own son to die on a cross and take away your sins and receive you back to himself again. That's why we put our faith in Christ because he restores us to God. The God who is to take over our lives. Listen, if you've never done that, I want, I want to pray for you this morning. If you look at your life and the way you're living and it, it's, it's got your name on the top of it, at the bottom of it, can I just encourage you this morning? Can you sign over ownership this morning to God? Can you just take out the deed of your life right now in your own mind? Everything you ever hoped for, whatever you wanted to be, things that are valuable to you, everything that makes you who you are. There's a place at the bottom. There's a blank there. It's intended for you to sign your ownership over to the God who really does own your life. If you've never done that, you've never come to a place in your life where your faith went toward God that way and you said, God, everything about me is yours. Well, this morning you can do that. Let's just bow our heads together. Lord, you know that there's some here this morning who, whose life is, is not lived under your governance your rule, your right to direct and lay claim to who they are. God, this morning, though, there are some hearts here who want that to be different. They want to be different from now on. Lord, they recognize this morning, like like I recognized in 1979, in the midst of all my foolishness, there was a God who was worth more to me than all those things. If you're here this morning and you just want to set aside... Your life, your way, and give your life over to God. Just, just turn to God in prayer right now and pray this prayer to Him. Say, Lord Jesus, I recognize that I've been living my life my way. This morning, I also recognize that my life rightly belongs to You. You are God. And everything exists. Including my life. For you. So Lord this morning. I give my life back to you. Lord I sign over the deed of ownership. From my life. And Lord I thank you that I can do that. Because Jesus Christ has forgiven me. Of all my sins. And his death. And his resurrection have restored me to you today. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for that. God, now come. Take up your ownership in my life. Lord, make me mindful. The God who is over all. You're over me. Trust you. I'll follow you from this day forward. Listen, I... You're here this morning and you're living like a functional atheist. Right now, you know there are categories in your life that you're not walking in obedience. Right now, you walked in this building, you know there are categories of your life where you are not being obedient to God. You are playing the fool, you are acting as though there is no God. And that's a real option for you to do other than what he has commanded you. All of us have had need of doing this, to repent of being the fool. Just let that be real to you. Speak to God right now. Open your heart to him. Be honest with him. Confess to him. Lord, I have... I've been acting as though what you have said doesn't matter in my life. I have been choosing to walk in things that you have said don't do. Lord, I have treated you like you don't exist. Lord, this morning I repent of that. Lord, I I, I turn away from momentary pleasures to embrace the happiness of having God be my God. Having you rule over my life, Lord. My future, Lord. I surrender to you, Lord, in obedience. I set it before you. To be obedient in these places. To not set them aside any longer. God, I pray for those who are here this morning that you've called them to something. For them, it feels like a Moses-sized call. They've lacked confidence in that call. Lord, for them, it feels like a giant military force. And all they've got is a stick. Lord, I pray that you lift their gaze this morning. Lord, lift their gaze. Lord, let them look upon you. Let them find the God who goes with them. I will go with you. Well, who are you, God? You are God over all. You are God in the heavens. You're the God who reigns. You're the, the God who causes all the little bitty particles in a molecule to move. God, convince us. Lord, as we close here in song, Lord, would you lift our gaze to you? To cause our hearts and our eyes to see you. God, compel us to trust in you, the God who is over us, the God to whom we are accountable, the God who goes with us.